It won't be pretty because it was a fucking dumpster fire for what we paid. A couple billion dollars. Go where no man has gone before. Sounds like it's a more of a pump and dump thing. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Some questionable, non-mentionable things if I'm paying $7,500. <laughs> See how spicy you are. You know the thing that pisses me off the most? <laughs> the loofahs. What? I, I don't want to talk about it. Juggling chainsaws like always. It's such a mess, dude. Prepping for the dopey challenge. Frankly, kind of a douche. Oh, man. Jeremiah, we are going to get canceled if you put that in the Hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast. Strapped into our desks and ready to record on a variety of topics. We've got IPOs out there, which is something that we haven't uh, seen a lot of lately. Definitely not good IPOs for sure. Meta is bringing as many horses to the AI race as it can. And there's an interesting intersection between new tech and old tech when it comes to how people are building cars. So a whole lot of stuff there on the radar. If this is your first time tuning in, you can email us questions and comments to show at resultsjunkies.com. You can find him on all those social media platforms at Paul Singh. And you can find me on most of those same platforms at Pizza in Motion. No TikTok for, for me. That is strictly Mr. Singh's realm. Mr. Singh, how are you doing today? I got to admit, man, I'm tired. Yes. <laughs> I'm tired. You know, by the time this thing gets published, I'll be finishing out a couple day stint in Florida for our quarterly planning meeting. Personally, you know, you know how it is here in Virginia. It's like we're we're about two or three weeks into the school year now. And what is it? The proverbial sort of mix of all the different viruses and bacteria that all the kids bring home have kind of like merged into like a super nasty thing. So we're on the tail end of getting healthy. Training's picking up. I got the Richmond Marathon coming up in two months, and I'm prepping for the Dopey Challenge in, Fl in Florida in January. So I'm just aching. <laughs> and then uh, professionally, you know, juggling chainsaws like always. But, but I'm tired, but I'm doing good. How about you, man? You came back from a conference. I want to hear all about it. I have so many questions, but how, how was the conference? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations going in. This was this was the all in summit. So for folks who who don't follow that podcast, it's a it's a fairly popular podcast with four VCs. They do not stay within the realms of VC speak. It is very wide ranging. For example, their their guest last week, well, I guess two weeks ago now, the week before the conference, was Chris Christie, a Republican presidential candidate. So definitely all across the board there. You know, I thought the it was a, very much a dichotomy. Like it was, it was a very expensive ticket. The VIP tickets were over five grand. Don't quote me on. I think they were seventy five hundred. What? Yeah, but I think like the way it was billed to us was that that would come with some level of of access to, you know, VIPs, if you will. <laughs> and so, and it was also like general from the standpoint of general admission, it wasn't clear. You know what you know what that entailed, and so we we opted for the the VIP tickets because there were some folks that were associated with the program that we thought would be interesting to spend some time with. From a program standpoint, I thought the program was was excellent. You know, Larry Summers, you know, the uh, old Treasury Secretary spoke. Bill Gurley spoke. There are a bunch of of really really high quality speakers, and I think they were very frank in terms of their assessment of where things where things were. Like Bill Gurley spent. 20 minutes talking about the government and government interference and, and how that impacts us from an economic standpoint and a growth standpoint in terms of, you know, what happens if the government gets more involved in tech, whether that's 
you know, Facebook or TikTok or, or whatever. So I thought it, I thought that was a very good conversation. He showed some slides, which I thought were interesting. And I don't know if he'll, he's going to release them or not. I, they might have video of it on their YouTube channel. But what was interesting about it was he showed this graph of how incumbents fared after government regulation. And I think, like, I won't get the numbers exactly right, but I'll get them directionally accurate. You know, Clinton signs this Telecommunications Act when he's in office in the 90s to help broaden broadband usage across the country to make it more accessible to folks and to make it more competitive so that small companies can compete. And when when that legislation went into effect, the the core big players, and I don't remember it was three, four, or five, but some three, four, or five large players in, in the broadband space had something like 45% of the market share. And fast forward 15 years after that was passed, and those big three, four, or five companies now control 96% of the market. And so the regulation actually protected the incumbents. And that was sort of like the, the gist of his talk. And it really made me think about that, especially when you sit here and you're, and you're hearing, because Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, was one of the speakers. And Brian has been very vocal about he thinks that that industry needs more regulation and that he wants to be a part of those discussions on regulation. And, you know, Bill Gurley's point was whenever you let the largest companies be a part of the discussions in regulation, all the rules are slanted to them and then and they are the dominant ones that get protected. And that, that's been the history in this country for the last few decades. And I thought it was a very interesting take on, you know, do you let, you know, Facebook, Meta, you know, all those folks into the room to negotiate on on any government regulation of social media and where does that end up? So just a very interesting discussion. I don't you know, I we didn't talk about this in the pre-show and and you can take a pass on this, but if you're open to it, like from a personal and a professional standpoint, what's the business case for you? Like when you think about conferences are a big thing that I think a lot about lately. You know, we, we at least for me, I stopped thinking about them when COVID hit and everything shut down. Prior to that, I was speaking, you know, somewhere once a month, you know, that sort of thing. But then it just stopped. And now I'm kind of like, oh, do I dip the toe back in? So I don't mean to put you on the spot and you can take a pass if you want, but how do you guys think about that? Like, you know... I, I, this is genuinely a broad question. You can take a pass on it if you want, but I'm just curious, like whether you paid $2,500 or $7,500, this is a non-zero time commitment. You flew across the country for X amount of days and did all that. But how do you guys think about that from a business standpoint, a personal standpoint, you know, cause it's non-zero cost. Yeah, I think so. I think when we think about conferences and we think about the expense that goes into them and, and to your point, including all those things, the time, the price of flights, hotels, all that stuff. It's, you know, there, there, there definitely should be a value ratio there. And, and I think first specifically, and then I'll zoom out, specifically on the All-In Summit, the reason why I don't think the ticket was worth the price, like the speakers were great, but I could have gotten all that access for a general admission pass, which I think was like 1500 which is still a lot of money, but obviously significantly less than 7500 So the rest of the money was paid for two things. One was VIP treatment. So there was like a swag bag and some parties in the evenings. I'm not a big party guy. So so those have little value for me other than the potential to network. And so like the thought was we would likely see some of the the folks there that we want to network, you know, the bigger fish, if you will. The first event evening was not a networking event. It was low ceilings, tin ceilings, people crammed, 750 of us crammed into a couple of small rooms. Like you couldn't hear yourself think. So there wasn't a whole lot of networking opportunity there. A little bit more networking opportunities on, on night two. But I would say networking opportunities were minimal. And the networking opportunities that we got were more focused on people that were looking for stuff from us. You know, we were the big fish, if you will, in this group. 
and the Bill Gurley's of the world were not part of the group. So it was more like people coming up to us asking us like, well, how do you get started? And how do you start a fund? And how do you pick companies? And like, those could be good connections for us, but certainly not the sort of thing we were paying for. And so to zoom out to your point of like, why would we attend conferences? I think we attend conferences for two reasons. Like the speakers, don't get me wrong. The speakers are, are definitely valuable, but it's not how we evaluate whether we go to conference, especially because typically, I think, as you know, for the bigger conferences, Web Summit, Collision, things like that, you typically don't know who the speakers are going to be. And you certainly don't know what their topics are going to be before the cheapest ticket price is gone. So Web Summit usually has like two for one deals or half price tickets, you know, call it 10 months out. And they might have some like speaker pictures on the website, but there's certainly no agenda. So you're really paying more for the other pieces. And so we look at it as how much deal flow do we think we could get in terms of meeting portfolio companies? And could we connect with other folks who we feel like could help us in the investing space? So people we could share deal flow with for the most part. Yeah. And so like Web Summit is usually high on our list, even though it skews international. Last time I was at Web Summit, there were 6,000 startups. So tons of exposure. Good speakers. Don't get me wrong. I expect that they'll always have good speakers at Web Summit because they generally have. But I'm going to be able to see a massive amount of startups. And not that I'm going to invest in 6,000, but being able to see hundreds a day gives great context as to what are people building right now. So that's, that's certainly one value part of it. And then the other part of it is, and I'm going to go back to Web Summit again just because the conference I think does this well, uh, probably the second or third time we went to Web Summit, they started this Web Summit After Dark thing, which again, I'm not a party guy, but the Web Summit After Dark thing was an add-on paid, quote-unquote, party each night that typically was attended by VCs. And so it was, okay, like, you know, like the, the, the person who's doing a, you know, their, their first startup isn't paying for Web Summit After Dark or some of these other networking events. And so it was paying for that level of, of access, if you will. And that that's why we like to attend conferences when we do. We don't attend many. We, you know, we used to attend a bunch of Techstars demo days. Obviously, we were on the tour with you for, you know, a little over two years. Um, Web Summit and Collision are two conferences that I think highly of and, and would continue to attend. I think I would, I think I would absolutely lean in on going to the All In Summit again because of the level of speakers that they had. Uh, but I think I would be hard pressed to to pay for a VIP ticket. It would almost yeah. certainly be general admission unless there was some, you know, big change there. Yeah, yeah. Well, this will be interesting because you know I think uh, I think it's not a question of if I get back into conferences or whatever. I think it's just a question of when. And I'm I'm kind of with you in the sense that like I'm not a big party or anything like that. I, conferences for me, personally and professionally, kind of align with yours. I think personally, it sort of gives you a lay of the land. You sort of get to see a lot in a very short period of time. And then I think professionally, you know, most of the value of a conference to me professionally is either you're either one of the speakers, which lets you just get your viewpoint out and and push away people that don't agree and, and attract people that do. And then the other benefit typically is just the conversations on the sidelines. Those don't have to be in the party. You know, they're typically in between talks and stuff like that. So yep. anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it's time to pick that back up. So I don't know that I'd ever pay 7,500 bucks for a VIP. like that. That better that better include some some questionable non mentionable things if I'm paying seventy five hundred dollars. But <laughs> so yeah, yeah. The other thing to consider here, and this sort of ties into something that that uh, came out on the points and miles world, you know, over the past couple of days, Delta made some pretty significant status changes to their elite program. Not a topic we're going to get into today, but one of the things that they changed says with some level of 
confidence to me that they believe that airline prices or airline ticket prices are going to go up next year, not down. And I'm not sure that's true. You know, Southwest is making a play right now for for folks to maintain status with them, and they're they're specifically targeting business customers. I'm also seeing some softness in business, typical business flight pricing for the for the third and fourth quarter of this year. But to your point on conferences, I do think there's there's always this, you know, this calculation that you're doing and how much it's going to cost to attend a conference, both from an airfare standpoint, a hotel standpoint and a time standpoint are absolutely very big metrics for us in terms of whether it's worth. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we're, we're worth attending. Yeah, this I'd be curious. I'll, I'll listen to that episode whenever you guys record it on the other side. But I, I know there's like a, a, a price, a price elasticity curve here somewhere. But it's it's already high enough, at least on the on the consumer side, where you know I I sometimes like question like like I don't think I would ever drive to Orlando, you know, for for Disney. But we used to you know we used to just buy Dana's parents' tickets from Norfolk up here, you know, because it's a twenty minute flight. And you know when it was two hundred bucks a seat or whatever, you just kind of okay, you just look the other way and knock it out. When it's six hundred bucks a seat, you're like, oh no, I'm good, you know. And yeah. So, on the consumer side, I think we've already hit that. So the idea of it going higher is is depressing. <laughs> and then on the on the <laughs> on the corporate side, I mean, look, I mean, look, I, I feel like we're at a really, you know, from a strata standpoint, like our annual contract values are fifty to hundred k minimums, kind of thing, you know. So it's not like like it's large enough where you could justify travel, but even then, between Zoom and all that stuff, uh, there's really no need to be anywhere. Um, I, I just can't think of a case where we'd really have to. So, me, well, but, and I think there's, I think there's, I think there's also some level of of inflection when it comes to how conferences are structured too, because you know, like I went to CES this year, the Consumer Electronics Show. But they also streamed a good number of their their talks for that conference. If you purchased a ticket, uh, and you know, All In Summit, interestingly enough, seems to have put all of the talks on their YouTube channel, even if you didn't buy a ticket. Web Summit, the last time I went, what it was, it hadn't we they hadn't fully geared up for that because it was pre pandemic. But I did buy a virtual ticket to Web Summit. I'm trying to remember if it was twenty two or 21, but one of the two years in the pandemic. And I thought they did a really good job of cataloging the, the video of the, of the various presentations. And to your point, miss the sideline stuff. Don't get those connections. But if it reduces your cost by 90% plus, it does have to be in the mix of things to consider. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. Let's talk a little bit about AI. We haven't really talked about that ever, other than the last 40 times we've talked about it. I, okay, so there's an article you posted about, you know, Facebook wanting to, gosh, where's the headline here? Yeah, they're developing a more powerful AI system. And this is, in context, more powerful than the one that they just released. And, you know, I'll read you an excerpt, and then I'd love to hear what you think about this. The thing that I thought was most interesting about the article, the plan system, uh, details of which could still change, would help other companies to build services that produce sophisticated text analysis and other output. So specifically, this model does not appear to be one that's being built for B2C and does not appear to be being built for 
small business, 20 bucks a month sort of subscribers. Yeah. I mean, look, I think this is the thing is that this race towards AI is really an arms, it's an arms race. And really there's, there's two classes of players in the AI world right now. There's the people that actually own the infrastructure and the underlying models that everybody uses. And then there's the other, you know, group, which is the majority, which is the people that rent access to those models and that underlying infrastructure. And really right now, OpenAI, Meta, if, if this is correct, and soon Tesla are going to be the ones with the largest GPU sort of clusters. And, and that that's a hardware arms race. None of us are going to win, that, you know, like. Um, right. So I, I think the, the, the thing about this is, is like, I, I'm not sort of negative on this or whatever. I just think that people need to be realistic about where they are on that stack. You know, as much as there's everybody talking about AI these days and all that, nobody seems to be really talking about who owns that data, where is it living, you know, what happens. I guess let me kind of add, talk about this from like the investor standpoint, because I don't know about you, but I'm seeing more and more new pitches coming where people are saying, or founders are saying, we've got this AI technology or whatever. You know, I'm an optimist. They're not lying, but man, they do sound pretty naive because you don't actually have an AI technology if you have an API to open AI. <laughs> you have a bunch of prompts, which, you know, you might say are proprietary, but this is kind of like, from an investor standpoint, this is like anybody that was building on top of Twitter 15 years ago, right? People used to be like, oh, I'm building on top of Twitter. It's a platform, to, you know, whatever. And then we all had this like, awakening when we realized that Twitter can just take that away. And they did. Yeah. And so I know I'm kind of all over the place on this, but I think this article is really more a testament to this arms race that does not apply to like startups or small businesses or people like you and me. This is like companies with a lot of capital that are investing heavy into CapEx for hardware and all that. This is a different ball game. And it's interesting to watch for sure. But for the rest of us, like we can't really build businesses on top of that. Not, not at least, at least not commercial grade businesses that could be standalone or anything like that. To put it another way, this is probably a really bad example, but like this is like uh, the gold rush. You know, there's that old saying that like in a gold rush, you want to be the one selling the jeans and the pickaxes. Yep. Basically, this is what Tesla and Facebook and OpenAI are duking it out on now, and 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 that probably includes you know Microsoft, Azure, and and Google as well. All these folks are just, you know, building the pickaxes now and they're going to own the, the the gold rush that's coming. And that's great, you know, but like, I think that's the part of the conversation that a lot of founders aren't listening to, right, or thinking about right now. It certainly isn't a, a, a conversation that even, I mean, look, I've got clients right now on the strata side of things that are like, they'll, they'll ask you a blanket statement. They'll say, well, when are you going to integrate AI? And it's like, well, okay, well, hang on. Just because you read yeah. AI in the New York Times, it's a much more complicated situation here because we can't just move patient data around and and just like have it sitting in these in these models or in these uh, infrastructures that we don't own, right? And, and and you and I have talked about this on previous episodes where when you give your data into that system, it could also be used to roll into a subsequent model. And that could be in breach of the terms of service that you might have already had in place with your users. And yeah. there's currently no good way to pull your data out of that if you ever had to. So, well, and I think, that I've, and it's interesting because, like, one of the things I think about this is that 
like this, the timing on this will be interesting for Meta in that I think there is a realistic chance that if this is supposed to roll out sometime in 2024, that there will be some more level of clarity on some of the things that you and I have discussed, the lawsuits that are starting against, uh, you know, OpenAI and these, you know, these, these large models, because ultimately that's going to need to be adjudicated in some form or fashion. Um, I, I don't, I, it's, it's certainly possible that a settlement could be precedent setting, but I, I think it's ultimately going to need some level of court intervention to draw some sidelines and some goalposts. And for Meta to have, uh, like you and I have talked a lot about some, you know, the, how frequently the, the first to market is not always the survivor. And in this instance, it may actually be to their advantage to be in market with their new model after you know there's been some uh, either legislative clarification or judicial clarification on who owns what and what are you allowed to mine for your models. Yeah, I do agree with that, but I will say the one caveat here is that there is a a moat that comes with the hardware. So whoever owns the underlying hardware, regardless of where the legislation lands, whoever owns the hardware and and the compute pro- power ultimately is the safest um, in the long term. So uh, I I don't know. I think I think this will be interesting to kind of watch and over the next couple of months and potentially even years because it's it's not going away at all. And I think that, you know, Facebook and Google and 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 all these guys carve out their hardware infrastructure and make sure that like no matter where the legislation lands, they've got the compute power and everybody's gonna have to come to them. In fact, this is I know we're not going to talk about this today, but uh, this is the whole thing with Tesla. I forget what they call that. They have a code name for their uh, sort of AI supercomputer that they're building right now, which is essentially mm-hmm. thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of GPUs that they're linking together. And my understanding is, is what, and they're spending billions of dollars on thing, you know, and when it comes online, it's openly discussed as potentially being the largest ever, you know, infrastructure for this sort of thing. And from their perspective, the reason this is important is because their self-driving capabilities are fully dependent on their ability to compute new models over and over and over, right? So like every time you drive a Tesla down the road, that thing, that car is uploading everything it sees and detects and all that. It's it's uploading all that into, into Tesla. And then right now they are compute limited. So in other words, full self-drive is compute limited, not hardware limited at this time. And the, the point I'm making with this is, is that because they're so far ahead on the development of that, that, that system, other car manufacturers are going to have to lean on Tesla eventually unless they build those same things themselves, which we can already see Tesla, for example, licensing usage of its superchargers to other car manufacturers. It's not obscene or crazy to think that soon enough, Tesla's FSD will also be licensed out you know, to, to Cadillac or whoever. And I think that's where this is all going to go. Coming back to, coming back to this, this article about Meta, like whoever owns the infrastructure has a lot of opportunity ahead of them. In the short term, they might want to just make their own models, which is what they're all doing now. But let's say the legislation lands on the wrong side. Let's just say the legislation lands very pro-consumer. Well, whoever owns the hardware runs the, still has the opportunity to then lease it out. Or, or come up with other interesting ways to maybe uh, remove the model risk from themselves and just keep the compute side of things. 
I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. It's certainly not going anywhere. And you know who's laughing their way to the bank the whole way is NVIDIA. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the... the 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 demand for what is it H one hundred is the is the current uh huh the new ones yeah. yeah you know I'm sitting here thinking you know let, let's just use in the context of Strata like we've got hundreds of thousands of patient records and millions of billing records and all this stuff right and it's it's getting updated every second but I you know in order for me to even do anything interesting I got to go buy these these, these this hardware. I mean, certainly you could lease it somewhere, but we're talking about patient data here. So I got to go buy this hardware, put it in a data center somewhere, hire somebody to do something with it. Um, we're, I mean, we're not, we're talking about something that's not cheap. You know, it's, it's, it's probably at least a 200K, uh, you know, expenditure before we ever see any sort of real, real, real benefit. So anyway, I, I just wish that all these people talking about AI being the future would actually be realistic about who owns it and... <laughs> I think this is a good segue into that other article you texted about, you know, this standoff about electric vehicle workers and, and, and stuff like that, because even though it doesn't seem similar, it, it, it kind of is, right? It's because it, it's really about like competitiveness. This is fascinating. It's, it's very fascinating to me, and especially because, and I, I, I kind of want to avoid the political side of things, although interestingly, one of the quotes in this article, which we'll link to in the show notes, is from Ro Khanna, who was one of the speakers at the conference. Ro Khanna is a Democratic representative from California, and his quote is along the lines of saying that battery manufacturing employees should be paid the same as unionized, or should be compensated the same as unionized auto workers for the three companies. And, and where this comes from is that if you're not familiar, um, you know, listening in, the UAW, which is the one of the largest unions in the auto manufacturing industry, is on the brink of striking. And one of the big concerns is how the the auto manufacturers will compensate employees for battery manufacturing. And regardless of whether you think the the unions are right or Tesla's right. The the reality of the situation is that batteries are being built differently than engines. They just are. And from this generational shift of, of how this stuff comes together, the battery technology is not even 100% onshore. Like we don't own all of the patents in the US, whereas, you know, other than very specialty shops, Ferrari and things like that, all the engines were built in Detroit. Like it would like, not, maybe not Detroit specifically, but but part of that, machine, if you will. And it's interesting in that if you think about it from a competitive nature, I mean, Tesla has a, ma if we fast forwarded and batteries were built the same as engines were in the 20s and 30s, Tesla's going to have an incredible cost advantage on how batteries are built if they maintain their current structure where they're non-union and, um, and building batteries at what would likely be a, a scalar savings over what the big three might be paying. And as you as you well know, batteries are going to be a huge part of the expense of new vehicles. So it's just a very interesting look into this massive shift in an entrenched industry. Well, I, I think I, look, I'm I, I think I'm wholly unqualified to to comment on you know price or uh, wages for workers or you know unions versus non unions. But I, I think this kind of touches or t ties into like what we just talked about is is moats. What what exactly is the moat that you have? And this is somewhat unrelated, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about over the last couple of days is this sort of broader concept that 
for smaller, earlier stage companies like Strata or like, you know, other, other early stage companies out there, regardless of whether you're venture funded or not, really, it could, you know, the struggle could be boiled down to the, uh, this idea that smaller, earlier stage companies are in a race to get to some sort of distribution before the incumbent figures out innovation. And I know that's poorly articulated, but what I mean by that is, is that like, you know, for big companies, like, let's just kind of tie it back to these Detroit automakers, right? What, sure. what exactly is their moat right now? You know, I think Tesla's moat right now seems to be that they're fully, almost fully vertically integrated. Like they don't really yeah. outsource yeah. anything, right? And that moat is really hard to, to, to traverse by the Detroit automakers, but because for the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's been this sort of yearly march towards more outsourcing, squeezing more and more margins down out of the vendors and, and outsourcing innovation, right? Like, on the other hand, like Tesla, you know, Tesla kind of builds everything and if they want to change it, they can kind of walk down the hallway and ask the, the, the person that's building that other thing to change it. Whereas yeah. like Ford, I mean, so this is crazy to me, right? Like, so we drive a Suburban, you know, when you got 99 kids, it's the only way you can fit everybody <laughs> in it, right? And it's, it's so wild to me. Like, you know, I've, we've been kicking around this idea of maybe buying a Tesla as a second car. We've been a one car family since the road trip days. But, you know, now the kids are getting older and now there's competing activities and now we might need two cars. And we've been sort of kicking around this idea of what that second car would be. And, you know, as a consumer, what's fascinating is, is that what you get in a Tesla in terms of consumer features and things like that, you just get more bang for the buck, right? Like my, my Suburban, even if I, it's a 2021 Suburban, but even if I, let's just say magically bought a 2024 Suburban, right? It's not materially any different. It suffers from, there's no over the year updates, at least not meaningful ones that affect my life or make the features better over time or anything like that. Whereas for right. the same price point, you know, a Model X, for example, updates along the way. It's, it's kind of like Tesla's not selling me a car. It's almost like selling me a computer that's just going to get better over the years. Well, you've specifically had issues with previous cars where you had to have updates, software updates that you had to pay for. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It's, you know, I know this particular article is about sort of the wage gap and, and you know, what they claim to be uncompetitiveness and stuff like that. But I, I, I think like, you know, the particular um, paragraph that you sent me or that you highlighted in there, they say, the companies say that even if they could raise wages for battery workers to the rate set under their national UAW contract, doing mm -hmm. so could make them uncompetitive with non-union rivals. This... I think is a false argument. Like that is a false argument. Like the wages are not what makes them uncomp uh, uncompetitive. It's the overall structure of the business. Like they just can't innovate fast enough. Whereas Tesla can. Right. And, and I don't know, like, I, I know I'm not maybe adding a lot of value here to particularly to the article. Well, yeah, I don't necessarily know that I agree. I think it's, I, I don't necessarily know it's an either or either. I do think it's an and I think that the, Big three workers are somewhat constrained because of the, you know, the union contracts. The workers probably are. I mean, like, yeah, the workers probably, you know, would benefit by getting paid more. You know, I totally agree with that. But the way this is worded kind of makes it seem that, that it's the wage gap 
or the, I, I'm sorry, I'm not articulating this well, but what I'm just trying to say is, is that, look, first of all, if they could get the wages equalized or whatever, that would be good for all those workers, right? More money is usually more better. <laughs> uh, that's the scientific way to think about that. What I'm just trying to say is, is that from a, from a business standpoint, the wages, even if you solve them, don't actually solve the underlying problem here. Tesla is set up to move fast, innovate fast, execute fast. It, it is, it's not encumbered by supplier contracts and those sorts of things, right? It's kind of like Amazon. Like it, Amazon basically has monetized every internal function that it built for itself. Like AWS was originally the cloud that it built for itself to grow. And then they just, you know, I'm saying just, but, but then they made that viable. Like you could actually use AWS externally. Like they, they're fully vertically integrated. And now that moat gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You just can't, you can't compete with them anymore. Anyway, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think like this article is really fascinating and I, I'm not qualified to like know anything or say anything really about like the political impact and all that. I just think this argument about making wages the thing that could make the big three Detroit automakers less competitive, I, I just, that doesn't feel like a, an intellectually honest argument, right? Like, like, I think the honest argument here would be, hey, we're the big three automakers, our cost structures are just not set up this way, and we, therefore, we just can't make these numbers work. I think that's a more honest discussion, but to just bl blanket say, like, hey, if we increase these wages, we'll be uncompetitive with Tesla. Well, like, it's not my problem that you're not competitive with Tesla, <laughs> you know? Like, you chose to, to outsource everything. By the way, just as a total aside, you know the thing that pisses me off the most about my car? And this is true. Like, before this car, I had Ford Raptors, and before that, other uh -huh. cars. The thing that yep. pisses me off about all these cars is that the simplest feature, the thing that should work in 2023 that doesn't work is the rain-sensing wipers. Like, why... Oh yeah, they're horrible. What what is they're that? Horrible. <laughs> like what is that? My my irrigation system, my the irrigation system for my house will is smart enough to actually look at the weather and say, I hey listen, I'm gonna not run the irrigation today because we expect 0.2 inches of rain in the next 24 hours. That's a $99 controller that I bought three years ago. It's smarter than the wipers on my my car. Yeah. So it's just hard for me to like kind of even like have any compassion for the big three because I'm sitting here thinking like you're making the argument about wages as if it's the thing holding you back when actually it's your overall structure, you know? And I think like, you know, back to strata, and I, I don't mean to bring it back to strata all the time, but like, you know, I think this is this method of thinking might be useful for other people building their business. When I think about like what the largest businesses will be of the future, particularly when it comes to healthcare and things like we like like we do. I think these companies are going to have to be consumer-obsessed and healthcare-native because you can't mix and match. You can't, like, that's not what consumers expect anymore, right? Like, I don't know about you, but, like, here in Virginia, you know, Inova is, like, the big healthcare system, right? And a lot of doctors sell to them now, and now I got to use their MyChart system. Right. There's, like, basically three systems I have to use. And, like, just, just today, just today, the day we're recording this, I got an email that was, like, kind of cryptic. It was like, oh, log into your MyChart check out your EOB for your benefits or whatever. I'm like, I didn't go to the doctor recently. What is that? 
Well, then you log into that. It's like error. You have to go to this other system. There's this other system you got to log into. Turns out it's like some explanation of benefits I went, I needed back in June that they hadn't. And anyway, it's like the consumer experience is just screwed completely. And I think whether we're talking about car manufacturers, restaurants, healthcare, whatever, an obsession with the, the, the consumers of today really matters. I think Here's the summary of this, by the way, for me. I know I'm kind of like segueing off of this a little bit, but like, I think the big opportunity for entrepreneurs over the next couple of years is really to look at incumbents. Again, doesn't matter, healthcare, cars, whatever. I think the big opportunity for health for entrepreneurs today is to say, to ask themselves three questions. What would this business look like if it had a deep understanding of today's consumer? How they consume information, how they like to buy things, how, how they like to pay for things. But that's the first question. How would this business look different if it was built for today's consumers. Secondly, how would this business look today if it had a deep understanding of today's technology? And then the third question is, is how would your answers to those earlier two questions change if you had no legacy baggage to think about? Yeah. Right? Like that's that, I think that's the really interesting part for the next couple of years because consumer behavior is changing, you know, it, it, it's absolutely changing. I, I, I vaguely remember us, well, anyway, let me pause there because I'm maybe getting a little fired up on this. <laughs> you fired up. <laughs> well, I know we were probably running short on time, but you meant, you mentioned uh, or you sent over this thing about Instacart raising their IPO price target. And I know you're not asking, but I'm just going to say that my cynical view on this is like, it sounds like it's a more of a pump and dump thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question because like ARM IPO'd a few days ago and was up after the the IPO. So it's it's I didn't expect to see positive news about IPOs in Q3. So, you know, to your point, I'm still not 100% sure what we're looking at, especially because that that whole Instacart space and Uber Eats and DoorDash and all that, like that whole space is a space that I have serious questions about. But positive news on IPOs is not something I think either you or I were expecting. Well, Here's the thing. Let me just Google something real quick. Look, I, I don't mean to be cynical about this stuff, right? But, you know, it's hard for me to kind of read that headline with a straight face, considering that mortgage rates are at like 7 or 8%. How, you know, know, inflation's still high, you know. Uh, now you got this like potential, you know, UAW walkout happening. And, and that's going to, if that happens, like constrain the supply of cars even more and raise those prices even more. And so when I read this article, one thing to take into account is that, let's use Instacart as an example. Instacart's had 19 funding rounds. Right, a couple billion dollars. Instacart's first funding round was on August 21st, 2012. So we're talking about a company that has investors tied up from 11 years ago in it. Right. Most venture funds, now I, I, obviously I, don't, I, I haven't dug deep enough to figure out who's in there, but most venture funds, not all, but most venture funds are somewhere on an eight to a 10 year cycle. And more often than not, they do have like a one or two year extension period that the LPs can approve. But I would bet money that this is the timing of going public now is less about their optimism of, of the markets and more about the fact that there's a growing number of investors probably across their 19 rounds that have seen no liquidity anywhere else and, and are saying like, hey, I need the money back. I'm not going to approve any more extensions. I'm not going to... And, and then on top of that, there's no new investors to come in and, and liquidate them or give them liquidity, right? Right. I think what I'm just trying to say is, I know I sound like kind of ne negative here, but like 
the Instacart IPO is not some harbinger of like a better future and more IPOs. I think what we're seeing here is, is that these companies that are coming to the market have been funded a long time ago. Their investors need liquidity and they're just not going to get it from any new investors anymore, right? Because of interest rates and all that. So this is the, this is the dark side of the venture treadmill. <laughs> I mean, this is Rackspace in 2008. Rackspace went right. public in 2008 in, in the, 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 the worst time, you know, before COVID and all that. Not because like they were optimistic, but because their investors were on the back end of the fund. <laughs> you know, the LPs were like, hey man, everything crashed. We got no money left. Go liquid. Right. There's no more extensions authorized. <laughs> yeah. For founders particularly, you know, this doesn't change the way you operate, but I think you should be even more careful about stepping on the venture treadmill because this is the ugly part. Nobody can predict the future, right? But, and neither could Instacart when they raised money 10 years ago or whatever. But this is what happens when you end up on the, you know, on the wrong side of the venture treadmill. You couldn't predict it. Somebody's going to pay the price now. And by the way, you know who's going to pay the price? It's going to be the employees. It's not going to be the founders. Uh, for sure. Or the for investors, sure. right? Yeah. The, the, uh, yeah. the employees are the ones that are at the low end of the capital stack. The worst thing that could happen to all this is like exactly what happened to Rackspace. I mean, I know I'm like fired up today. Rackspace, if you look at it, go back and Google this. Whoever's listening, like go back and Google this. The, the end result of going public in 2008 certainly was that the investors got liquid. That's great for them, right? But actually, if you look at the wealth distribution to the employees, really the, only the top five or six people at Rackspace employees got any money at all. Right. And, and that had profound implications, I think, for the San Antonio tech scene and all that. Like, in other words, I, I'll, here's my, my crazy prediction. If Rackspace could have gone public maybe a year or two sooner, like earlier than 2008, or if it could have stayed private for maybe another two years before the markets kind of settled in 2010 or whatever, if either of those things would have happened, I bet you San Antonio today would be the tech hub, not Austin. Interesting theory. I mean, look, San Antonio had all the infrastructure. It's got four large military bases. All the web hosting infrastructure sure. was there. Everything was there. But when no liquidity was given to the employees, what, 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 there was no further investment or angel investing that was going to happen. And a few quarters later, Facebook ended up, as I recall anyways, Facebook opened up a small engineering office in Austin instead. Yeah. And you could argue it was because the university's up there and all that, but the distance between Austin and San Antonio is like 45 minutes. We're not talking about a big space. Oh, no. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 80, 80 miles an hour on the highway, not a problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, those like turnarounds at the intersections where they go on the inside of the bridge, you know you know what I'm talking about? That still messes me yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. All right, man. I got a little spicy there. Uh, yeah, you know, you never know what you're getting with me, I suppose. You did. I think that's a good place to put a pin in it for the week. <laughs> and we will undoubtedly loop back next week to see how spicy you are. Your face right now. I wish people could see your face. Once we start doing video on this, I think it's going to be amazing. Because I think at some point we're going to have to do memes of like your face when I start riffing like this. Because your face <laughs> right now looks like, oh God, can we just please be done? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna be in Florida next week, or you know, when this long or when this gets released, I'll be probably getting on a plane to come home. But um, what's your what's your travel looking like for the next couple of days? Uh, let's see, Chicago for college visits for our daughter, and then two Vegases and an Orlando. Two? We're 
We're talking about the next seven days, right? How do you do two Vegases? It's such a mess, dude. It is so, I, That's I don't want to talk about it. I'm so, I am so infuriated with my travel schedule right now. It's not funny. Well, let me know. Text me when you get into Orlando. We are doing an offsite for this quarterly planning meeting. We're doing our offsite. I think it's called it the Brownwood over near the villages. Mm. I want to check this out. I, I keep hearing about all the loofahs and the crazy parts. I watched this documentary on Netflix about the villages now. So I'm going to go down there for research and report back soon. There you go. All right. I'll be waiting to read your report. I'm not taking any loofahs, by the yeah, way. Yeah, so. you better not be. <laughs> all right, man. Good talking to you and safe travels crisscrossing. That's terrifying. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> all right, man. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. The preceding was produced in association with Crooked Path Productions.